As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We interrupt this broadcast before it was history. It was news. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade. I said, those are shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. One of the officers, the senior lead officer for Brentwood, he believed that O.J. Simpson would eventually kill her if he wasn't stopped. I saw more yellow crime tape at a scene than ever before. I mean, it stretched for as far as the eye could see. Where I was standing was this courtyard full of blood. It will stay with me for the rest of my life. The Los Angeles Police Department is actively searching for Mr. Simpson. Suspect wanted for a double 187 in West LA Division. Suspect named Arthur James Simpson. O.J. Simpson. And here's a story that was uh, about to explode. It wasn't, where's Waldo? It's, where's O.J.? I'm Brian Williams. He was famous enough to be known by just those two letters, O.J., Orenthal James Simpson rose from relative poverty to fame and riches as a running back, first at the University of Southern California, where he won the national championship and the Heisman Trophy, then with the Buffalo Bills in the NFL, where he set the single-season rushing record in 1973. After retiring, he became the genial O.J., the likable enough superstar to 
successfully make the transition into television sports commentator. Then he became a national spokesman for companies like Hertz Rent-A-Car, and he co-starred in movies like The Naked Gun. All of that changed on the night of June 13, 1994, when his ex-wife Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ronald Goldman were found brutally murdered. I was the crime reporter at the television show Hard Copy in June of 1994. This is Diane Diamond, one of the first reporters to get to the crime scene. I get a call on the early morning of June 13th to go to Brentwood because there's been a double murder. The ex-wife of O.J. Simpson and an unknown man have been found dead in her courtyard. It was about 7 a.m. in the morning. I was driving in from a regular day shift uh, at Channel 2 in Los Angeles. Carl Stein was a video journalist for KCBS Channel 2 in Los Angeles. And on the way in, got a phone call, and they said, hey, can you just uh, swing by Brentwood? Uh, we got a call that something might be going on over there, and we'll give you the address, and just uh, do a drive-by and just check it out. Give us a call. When Carl arrived at the address, 875 South Bundy Drive, he was struck by the size of the crime scene. I saw more yellow crime tape at a scene than ever before. I mean, it stretched up and down the sidewalk for as far as the eye could see. Where is this all leading to and why is that tape stretched so far down to like protect the scene? So as I maneuvered around, I was able to get a better glimpse of what was going on. And my goodness, it was the most blood that I ever seen. Of course they have, you know, the white sheets covering the bodies, but uh, it was pretty jarring. When I get to the scene, the morgue truck is just pulling away. And I remember looking at the sidewalk leading up to Nicole Brown Simpson's condo gate and being overwhelmed by the amount of blood I saw. There was blood all over the sidewalk in the rivulets of the pavers down to the street off to the corner, there were swish marks and paw prints in the blood. And I would later learn that this was Nicole Brown Simpson's dog on a leash who had gone down to the corner and sat and howled, literally howled for help that night that she was murdered. I looked at my cameraman and I said, there's nobody here, let's, let's keep going. So we went up to the gate of the condo and there were these tall purple agapantha flowers, purple petals. And I remember seeing red blood droplets on the petals. And of course, this is the exact spot where Nicole collapsed, stabbed to death. We went in through the gate and we could see right into Nicole's home. There were pictures of OJ and the kids. It just all seemed so peaceful. But right outside the window, right where I was standing was this courtyard full of blood. It will stay with me for the rest of my life, what I saw there that day. It was just overwhelming, and it was so frightening, it made me shake. It was the biggest story in L.A. that day, so I was, I just immediately went on to it to try to figure out what was going on. Steve Futterman was the Los Angeles-based reporter for CBS Radio News. I did know 
that O.J. Simpson did have some past issues with his ex-wife. I mean, uh, many reporters did. I was not the only one, but I was aware of it. I was aware of it. O.J.'s run-ins with the LAPD over his occasional bouts of domestic violence was common knowledge among the L.A. news media, which is why Steve Futterman and other journalists started digging into O.J.'s whereabouts on the night before. Howard Weitzman was O.J. Simpson's attorney, and he made a comment, very accurate comment, because people wanted to know, where's O.J. Simpson? He's in Chicago. And he was in Chicago. What he didn't say was, he flew out on a red eye last night. I had a friend who was at the dance recital that Sidney Simpson took part in. And he said, I saw him last night. I saw Simpson last night. I said, how could you see O.J. Simpson last night? He's in Chicago. And he said he was at the uh, dance recital for his daughter. And I was able to confirm that. And that made it possible that O.J. Simpson was here at the time that the murders were likely taking place. Couldn't give an exact time because we didn't know exactly. They may have taken place at 2, 3 in the morning. But you got the impression that he was here. And what did that mean? It meant that he could possibly be involved in this. I knew O.J. Simpson to be a narcissist, you know, and I didn't realize he was a malignant narcissist, as, you know, but we knew him as a narcissist. Zoe Turr was an independent helicopter reporter in Los Angeles. I had two officers that used to come over my house at night on their, their regular patrol between Brentwood and Pacific Palisades. And one of the officers, he was a senior lead officer for Brentwood, and he would tell us, about going to O.J. Simpson's home and breaking up fights and fist fights, And he told me he believed that O.J. Simpson would eventually kill her if he wasn't stopped, if he didn't, you know, get it through his head, that he was just, you know, violent and they needed to separate. And that was always in the back of my mind. The exact time that Mrs. Simpson and Goldman died has not been determined. Police estimate between 10 and 11 Sunday night. Today, a neighbor, Lou Carp, who lives right next door to Mrs. Simpson, came forward. He confirmed earlier reports that a dog was heard barking wildly at 11 that night, but he says he heard nothing else. When I got home between 10 to 11, 11, went outside to get my mail, only saw a dog that was very agitated with a leash. This was a celebrity's ex-wife and Ron Goldman, dead of massive stab wounds. You know, think about this. Nicole Brown Simpson was stabbed, uh, I don't know, 12 times, nearly decapitated. Ron Goldman was, was struck 20 times, found in a fetal position over near the wall of the courtyard. This was not some random uh, home burglary. This was a crime of passion and intense, intense violence. I was assigned to go after the storylines that nobody was else was reporting. I found a drug dealer in Brentwood who swore he was with O.J. that night. They'd gone to Burger King for burgers and that O.J. was higher than a kite that night because he had sold him the drugs. And I said, what kind of pills? He said, oh, everything. Uppers, downers, anything I can get, I can sell to O.J. He's always buying. Now, how do I know he was telling the truth? 
We took that drug dealer to a very prominent polygrapher in Los Angeles. Ed Gelb is his name. And this kid passed not one, but two polygraph tests. So we put it on the air. There had been a lot of calls to the O.J. Simpson residents over, you know, spousal abuse. So I had a different take. I, I wasn't all caught up in, in the publicity machine. I knew some of the backstory. After the murders, the news media started reporting those rumors of Simpson's penchant for drug use, partying, womanizing, and the cold hard facts of his domestic violence record. Nicole Simpson had ended their abusive marriage in 1992, but in May of 94, O.J. and Nicole made one last attempt at reconciliation, and it failed. Any good crime reporter will tell you that it is the ex-husband, ex-spouse of the dead person who's the primary suspect. Less than an hour after the murders were thought to have been committed, O.J. Simpson boarded American Airlines Flight 668, the red-eye to Chicago. He checked into what was then the O'Hare Plaza Hotel, room 915, where the hotel manager later told police Simpson received at least one phone call and made as many as 10 others. He checked out immediately after making those calls to fly back to L.A. Upon his return, officers cuffed Simpson and took him in for questioning. My partner, Detective Lane, we're in our interview room in Parker Center. The date is June the 13th, 1994, and the time is 13.35 hours. Uh, and we're here with O.J. Simpson. And I thought, oh, well, the cops have got to think what I'm thinking. He is the prime suspect. Okay. Um, so what do you think? We just maybe recount last night. Yeah. Uh, what, when was the last time you saw Nicole? We knew the dance recital. He looked up off, and I was out of that pad. Where was the uh, dance recital? Uh, probably there, I told. And was that for one of your children out for my daughter's children? What time was that yesterday? I ended about 6.30, quarter seven. Okay. like that. I, you know, in the ballpark, right in that area. I got a copy of that interrogation tape between O.J. Simpson and the two LAPD detectives, Lang and Van Adder. And I have to tell you, I was a little underwhelmed by what I heard. However, the detectives did ask O.J., hey, you got kind of an oozing sore on your left hand, your, your finger on your left hand. How, how'd you get that? O.J., we got sort of a problem. We've got uh, some blood on and in your car. we got some blood at your house. And uh, sort of a problem. Oh, well, we, we like to do that. Uh, we've got, of course, the cut on your finger that you don't aren't real clear on. Uh, you, <laughs> yeah. you recall having that cut on your finger the last time you were in the pool, Oh, uh, we can? Yeah. No. Well, so that's fine. Yeah. And he said, oh, um, well, I, I cut it on a glass in the hotel room in Chicago. When I learned Nicole was dead, I, became, I went berserk for a little bit. Now, we know that he was lying, that, that there was no blood in the hotel room in Chicago because the police immediately dispatched a, a local detective to go and look. And there was no blood found there. 
After questioning, O.J. Simpson was released. Then LAPD spokesman David Gascon held a press conference to confirm the identities of the murder victims and the actions taken by police. Press release from the Los Angeles Police Department today's date. On June 13, 1994, at approximately 10 minutes after midnight, a witness discovered the body of Nicole Brown Simpson, 25 years of age. An investigation was conducted by responding officers. It revealed the presence of a second body, an individual who has now been identified as Mr. Ronald Goldman, 25 years of age. Out of concern for any additional victims, Ms. Simpson's residence was checked and two children, a boy five years of age and a girl seven years of age, were found asleep in the residence. The children were carefully removed without being exposed to the crime scene. Victim Nicole Brown Simpson is the ex-wife of O.J. Simpson. Mr. Simpson was contacted in Chicago and voluntarily returned to Los Angeles to meet with investigating officers. Well, obviously, we're not going to rule anyone out, and we will pursue whoever we need to pursue until we bring the uh, uh, party to justice. On Thursday, June 16th, O.J. managed to slip past the hordes of media ringing his Brentwood estate to attend Nicole's funeral with his young children, Sidney and Justin, by his side. He was visibly upset as he greeted other mourners, including Howard Weitzman, the attorney who was representing him until yesterday. The service for Nicole Simpson was private, invited guests only, many of them entertainment and sports figures. Also present was Simpson's new attorney, Robert Shapiro, who earlier announced that he would ask for a second autopsy on Mrs. Simpson and Ron Goldman, but refused to say why. Both stabbed to death late Sunday night outside her Brentwood townhouse. Meanwhile, evidence from the murder scene mounted, and it all pointed straight at O.J. as the executioner. On Friday, June 17th, police notified Simpson's attorney he was being charged with the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Lyle Goldman. The double homicide charge meant no bail and possibly the death penalty. Simpson's attorneys negotiated for O.J. to turn himself in. The surrender was planned as carefully as a staged television event. Simpson was to arrive at police headquarters in downtown L.A. at 11 a.m., followed by a press conference with prosecutors and then one with police officials. Zoe Turr was among the throng of reporters awaiting Simpson's arrival. I thought he would turn himself in like his lawyers promised. I mean, where was O.J. Simpson going to go? So I stood outside with all the other reporters, more than 100 of us. KCBS cameraman Carl Stein was also awaiting O.J.'s arrival. It was like all hands on deck. Crews were assigned uh, to try to get in a position to see if they can get a shot of O.J., either coming or going, if in fact he did, you know, show up. I was sent down also, but to set up for a live press conference, which they assumed would happen or take place after OJ, you know, turned himself in. But it turns out Simpson was a no-show and Commander Gascon delivered the news. Mr. Simpson has not appeared. The Los Angeles Police Department right now is actively searching for Mr. Simpson. I can't remember ever hearing such a collective gasp of shock from a gathering of media as I remember that moment. 
And I think it took a second for reporters to realize what you know Gascon had just said. Like, like, where's OJ? <laughs> Holy cow. And, and of course, LAPD was just totally on the defensive after that. The Los Angeles Police Department is also very unhappy with the activities surrounding his failure to surrender. And it just like hit me like, like a ton of bricks. I looked at Marika, my camera operator, and Larry Welk, my co-pilot, and I said, let's go find him. And we left the, um, the press conference because O.J. Simpson was gonna, wasn't coming and got into the helicopter, started it, and that began our search for O.J. Simpson. When they said, Mr. Simpson at this point is a fugitive from law, that was a take your breath away moment. David Borman was executive producer of special events for NBC News in New York. Because most of the time, when you go into a control room, you have some sense what you're going to get. We did not expect that. We covered that live and may have done a couple of other brief interrupts throughout the day. And then, of course, on nightly news. Suspect named Arthur James Simpson, O.J. Simpson. Wanted for a double 187 in West LA Division. Suspect may be driving a white or light colored Ford Bronco. Suspect was last seen wearing a yellow golf shirt, faded blue jeans, and white Reebok tennis shoes. Suspect is possibly armed, use caution. In an effort to spin the bizarre turn of events, the district attorney held an afternoon press conference, as did OJ's lawyer Robert Shapiro, who proclaimed himself shocked and disappointed. Then, Simpson's friend Robert Kardashian read a rambling letter from O.J. Simpson that sounded for all the world like a suicide note. To whom it may concern, first, everyone understand I have nothing to do with Nicole's murder. I loved her, always have, and always will. If we had a problem, It's because I loved her so much. Like all long-term relationships, we had a few downs and ups. I took the heat New Year's 1989 because that's what I was supposed to do. I did not plead no contest for any other reason but to protect our privacy and was advised it would end the press hype. I don't want to belabor knocking the press, but I can't believe what is being said. Most of it is totally made up. I know you have a job to do, but as a last wish, please, please, please leave my children in peace. Their lives will be tough enough. I can't go on. No matter what the outcome, people will look and point. I can't take that. I can't subject my children to that. This way, they can move on and go on with their lives. My mama taught me to do unto others. I treated people the way I wanted to be treated. I've always tried to be up and helpful. So why is this happening? I'm sorry for the Goldman family. 
I know how much it hurts. Don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. Thanks for making my life special. I hope I helped yours. Peace and love, OJ. When Robert Kardashian read OJ Simpson's letter, it seemed like to me a suicide note. And it did influence me. In flying, Marika thought that OJ Simpson was going to go to a hillside and it would be a sunset and he was going to commit suicide. Some romanticized version. I thought he would go down to the graveside of Nicole Simpson and try to engender some sort of sympathy. Uh, Suicide, I knew, would be pretty much out of the question with a narcissist. But I thought he would do some sort of play for sympathy. So I decided to go to the gravesite. Here's Kardashian with just providing some more cover for OJ. This is a nice distraction. It's it's just so convenient, like a suicide note. But I feared that the dude's on the run. You know, nobody knows where he is. And this is give more time, you know, to get in the hiding or wherever he wants to take off to. The minute Bob Kardashian read that apparent suicide note, I thought to myself, okay, so is he going to kill himself or is he going to be in the wind forever? While OJ remained on the run, David Borman and NBC News faced the real challenge of how to juggle this breaking news with the network scheduled airing that night of Game 5 of the NBA Finals. I had a chat with Candy Lack, who was the president of NBC at the time, to figure out a plan because the NBC network had the game and there was this huge story that we were still reeling from, the search for for O.J. Simpson. And we knew that America was going to be watching NBC that night just because of the game. So we had worked out an arrangement with the network and with sports to where we got five minutes, I think. Maybe it was a little less. So right before the game started, we did a brief special report, just updating the country on the fact that O.J. Simpson was at large and was being sought. And then we handed off to NBC Sports and the game began. We will continue with our story in just a moment. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Brian Williams. O.J. Simpson was a fugitive from justice and the hunt was on. Zoe Turr and her team were airborne, monitoring police frequencies on the scanner, scouring the Orange County freeways for any signs of that white Bronco. As they flew over Nicole's gravesite, they picked up a sheriff's department broadcast that suggested O.J. Simpson was using a cell phone somewhere in their vicinity. 
Then they discovered Simpson was traveling with his friend Al Cowlings. confident that I would find O.J. Simpson. Detectives from Orange County detectives, sheriff's detectives, were already staking out the gravesite. So we saw an undercover unit outside. We knew we were on to something. And so after I flew over the gravesite and he wasn't there, we decided to look in the area and start making concentric circles and going out wider. And remember, we're still listening to the police broadcasts. I'm also listening to FBI frequencies. So we heard a broadcast when we were over the gravesite and in the area. We heard that they were being looked at in the area of the El Toro Y in Orange County. And we were right there. I'm flying over the freeway and I look between my legs and we have a chin bubble, this clear plastic window at the bottom of the helicopter. And I look down and there is a white Bronco on the freeway. I tip the nose of the helicopter down and I dive to get a closer look. And as I'm watching, I see a sheriff's unit come up and another sheriff's unit come up and another sheriff's unit come up. And that validated. That had to be the vehicle that they're talking about, the vehicle O.J. Simpson was in. So as I'm getting lower, Marika's setting up her camera. She's throwing it up on her shoulder. I'm turning on the microwave receivers. I'm on the air talking to CBS radio, which is KNX radio, telling them we found him, we've got OJ. They're about to put me on the air live. I'm also talking on an engineering frequency, setting up the microwave, telling them, you know, hey, we got OJ Simpson, come to us, get to us, get to us. So we're now going on the air live with KNX radio and CBS television, and boom, we've got the exclusive on the story. We owned it, we were overhead, and we went live to a worldwide audience of several hundred million people. We're over the uh, five freeway, past the 55 freeway. O.J. Simpson is believed to be in the white Bronco that you see in the center of your picture, followed by as many as nine Orange County Sheriff's Deputy. We were getting details from the Los Angeles Police Department and the Sheriff's Department in real time, either on the scanner or on the air-to-air -air frequency. So we pieced together as much as we could to fill in the audience. And O.J. Simpson didn't stop. He was moving slowly up north on the 405 freeway, and there weren't any competitors anywhere. We beat them on this story. 
There are a lot of freeway chases in and around Los Angeles, but this one was jaw-dropping. I mean, first of all, the the Bronco wasn't going very fast. Cowling was driving very slowly and and measured, but it was O.J. Simpson. He had a gun to his head. The whole world was watching. I remember standing in the newsroom and looking at other people going, wow, what's going to happen? For a short time, Zoe and Marika had their television scoop all to themselves. But as police closed in on O.J., the rest of the news media closed in as well. Soon there were seven news helicopters dangerously jockeying over the Bronco and the parade of police cars, none of which exceeded 50 miles an hour. We are looking at live pictures of Interstate 5 in Los Angeles. We believe that that white vehicle, which is being trailed by a phalanx of California Highway Patrol cars and helicopters, belongs to Al Collins, who disappeared with O.J. Simpson earlier today. It is the latest bizarre development in a string of bizarre and shocking developments that have been going on all day long. NBC, where, remember, O.J. Simpson worked as a football analyst, initially aired only updates during the broadcast of Game 5 of the NBA Finals between the Knicks and the Rockets, a programming decision that David Borman was not pleased with. The contract with NBC Sports and the NBA made it really difficult for news to break in and and interrupt we couldn't interrupt a game really and there was over the course of the next two or three hours a major tug of war as we we negotiated our way on air and off air as the bronco chase was happening we had the knbc helicopter was in the air once we brought that in we saw it coming in and tom broca and i were desperate to get on the air Again, to bring you up to date, we believe that that car belongs to Al Collings, who was a lifetime friend of uh, O.J. Simpson and disappeared with, with him today from a home in the San Fernando Valley as police were closing in to make an arrest of the well-known uh, personality uh, shortly after he had been formally charged with two counts of murder. We had millions and millions and millions of viewers. Everyone was watching the game, and, and the O.J. story had sparked sort of immense curiosity. As we were busy negotiating with sports to get on the air, in the control room, I could see all the other networks begin to come up. CNN, of course, had the luxury of having a feed from every local station in Los Angeles. And we were having a heck of a time. I could feel the country turn the channel because that's what they wanted to see. And and they put the the chase, the Bronco chase, in the big box and this championship game in the little box. It spoke volumes about how important and how compelling this story was to everybody. Most people in their mind probably remember a split screen, but one of the other things the contract wouldn't let us do was do a split screen. So where people saw it, and if they were watching an NBC station, the local stations were putting in the Bronco chase because I wasn't allowed to sort of step on parts of the game with a second screen at the time. And it was a, it was horribly frustrating. But at the start of the second half of the basketball game, network president Andrew Lack called Dick Ebersole president of NBC Sports 
and told him the network was jumping on the caravan. The whole nation was watching, but the whole world was watching too. Another helicopter shows up and another helicopter shows up. And before you know it, there were like 18 helicopters over one white Bronco. It looked like something right out of Apocalypse Now. I kid you not. And the sound below from people I, I talked to who were down below, it sounded like, you know, war. This armada of helicopters flying over this car. And the car wasn't even speeding. It was just a slow speed pursuit. Nothing too exciting, except the fact that it was O.J. Simpson running from police wanted for two homicides. That was shocking. All of the networks were by now showing the same image and anchors were hard pressed to add any real insights. It was what it was. Some resorted to rounding up Simpson's friends and former teammates. Well, man, I'm just praying that you guys will just give yourself up, man. Just stop. Please stop. In Jesus' name, just stop, man. Because we love you, man. Just stop. <laughs> Vince Evans, we thank you for joining us. Uh, how long have you been watching here? Have you been watching for most of the last uh, half hour or so? Yeah, And your thoughts about what his mental state might be? To be doing something like this? This certainly isn't the OJ you know. Well, but I know he's been under a lot and uh, a lot of pressure, and I'm sure that he's uh, feeling like the world is against him right now. Near the end, when it seemed like there was going to be, you know, finished, that the, the rumor was strong that it looked like he was going up the 405 and headed back to Printwood. And as I later talked to one of my friends from CBS who was out there at the house in Brentwood, he just had his camera up near the, the front door of the house and been there for quite a while. And then when, when LAPD, I guess, realized that, hey, he's coming back home, they wanted to clear all the media out of there. So my buddy, he left, but he left his camera on and hot. So, and LAP didn't even, you know, think anything about it. So coverage-wise, they had the helicopter tracking OJ's every move. And when they went up to the house, they had that hot camera just sitting right there that they could cut to and get all that live interaction when OJ came home. It was remarkable. The white Ford Bronco finally arrived back at O.J. Simpson's Brentwood home just before 8 p.m. local time after inching past the television satellite trucks blocking its path. He's pulling right up uh, to his home. Uh, sure looks like it, Harold. Uh, here he is now. Here's the car that, pulling into the estate. driveway. Uh, Mark Coogan, yeah, we're watching, watching O.J. Simpson pull into his driveway. He, he has driven all the way, and here's somebody coming up beside him. And look, there's a, a bit of a scuffle here. Oh. And uh, Al Callings, who is at the wheel, apparently is telling, telling whoever it got, came up there to get out of the way, get back, and to stay out of the way. O.J. Simpson is in the back of this vehicle. It has tinted windows. We're unable to see a, a, a clear picture of him. But uh, the reports we've received off of the police scanners is that Mr. Simpson has a gun to his head and obviously is threatening suicide. Mr. Cowling, as he has done since this uh, since this drive began an hour and 15 minutes ago, has been waving everybody off, telling them to stay back. 
And uh, all we can do is watch along with you, keep our fingers crossed uh, that OJ will in fact put that gun down and that this will end peacefully. Inside the Bronco, police found family photos, a passport, a fake goatee and mustache, and a loaded Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum. Just before 9 p.m., O.J. Simpson surrendered and was taken into custody. I was thinking last night about this case and their theory and how it didn't make any sense and how it didn't fit and how something is wrong. It occurred to me how they were going to come here and stand up here and tell you how O.J. Simpson was going to disguise himself was going to put on a knit cap and some dark clothes and he was going to get in his white Bronco and this recognizable person and go over and kill his wife. The surreal so-called slow speed chase of O.J. Simpson was just the opening chapter in what would become the most media saturated murder trial in American history. A kind of watershed moment in the tabloidization of television news. The 133 days of televised testimony bestowed the Warhol-prescribed 15 minutes of fame on everyone involved, from the prosecution team of Christopher Darden and Marsha Clark to the high-priced battery of defense attorneys the press dubbed the Dream Team, led by Johnny Cochran and Robert Shapiro, to O.J.'s houseguest Brian Cato Kalin. Even the trial judge, Lance Ito, became a much-parodied personality. For the occupants of the media room on the 18th floor of the courthouse dubbed Camp OJ, Steve Futterman of CBS News says one moment stood out above all others. The glove, where the prosecution decided to put the glove on OJ Simpson's hand. As you know, reporters talk to each other And a bunch of my colleagues said, this is a big mistake. This is a big mistake, what they're doing. But that was quite a moment where he holds the glove up. If you look at the glove, he was not trying to, he was trying to make sure that glove would not get on his hand too. It's not as simple as the glove didn't fit. He was not going to let that glove fit. And also a glove with blood gets a bit crusty and doesn't have the same flexibility, but O.J. Simpson was not going to let that glove fit him no matter what. And the prosecution didn't really have much of a comeback. I think that was a game changer. It just was such an emotional moment. The optics were so bad for the prosecution, so good for the defense. I think that's really the the key moment. It's no disguise. It's no disguise. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. The soap opera that was The People of the State of California versus Orenthal James Simpson mesmerized the nation. The trial also exposed more profound divisions of race and class among the nation's unofficial jury of millions of viewers. After listening to 150 witnesses during eight months of testimony, the jury took three hours to arrive at their verdict. I've covered one other trial where you had a very quick verdict, much quicker than any of us expected. That was the Patty Hearst bank robbery trial in San Francisco. And in that case, she was found guilty. When we heard the jury reached a verdict, you had everyone with an opinion 
and no one knew what to think. I had people calling me up that night who claimed, these are friends of mine in the business, not the news business, but in the court business, the legal business. I heard, I heard what they did. He's going to be found guilty. Uh, I, then someone else says, I, I've heard a leak. He's going to be found not guilty. I could not believe it because th- these things don't leak usually. Uh, but I listen to him. Sometimes things happen that you don't expect to happen. So I had no idea what to think. I really was not sure what was going to happen. I thought that after just three hours of deliberation, oh, well, they've decided he's guilty. Because that's what usually happens. But the racial makeup of this jury gave me pause. Well, we don't wish to add to the anticipation nor the anxiety either, but we are just uh, a couple of minutes away from that moment when we do anticipate that uh, Judge Edith, who's presided over this trial, uh, will ask the jury to come in. The process is uh, fairly straightforward. The jury will return uh, the foreman, foreman number one, as we know, a black professional woman in her 50s who said at one point, I'm coming to do a job. All right, Mr. Cotton, Mr. Simpson, would you please stand and face the jury? Time stood still on the morning of October 3rd, 1995, when Judge Lance Ito asked his court clerk, Deirdre Robertson, to announce the jury's decision. Mrs. Robertson. Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant Orenthal James Simpson not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson, a human being, as charged in count one of the information. Superior Court of the State of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the State of California versus Orenthal James Simpson. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Ronald Lyle Goldman, a human being, as charged in count two of the information. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, further find the special circumstance that the defendant, Orthal James Simpson, has in this case been convicted of at least one crime of murder of the first degree and one or more crimes of murder of the first or second degree to be not true. Signed this second day of October 1995, juror 230. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is this your verdict? So say you one, so say you all. Yes. All right, just have it quiet in the courtroom, please. All right, Mrs. Robertson, would you please pull the jurors? When I heard the verdict, I realized, okay, they're not going to go with the evidence as presented. They're going to go with their heart and not their gut. I was assigned to be in an Irish pub for this verdict, you know, to get the, the common person's reaction. And I have to tell you, the place fell completely silent. Everybody was looking up at the bar TV sets. And when the jury foreperson read, not guilty, the place exploded in outrage. These howls of, what? So I remember thinking at the time, this is a case that really has divided America along racial lines. David Borman of NBC News believes he and his colleagues at the other networks were blind to just how wide the divide really was between white and black America when it came to O.J. Simpson. 
we had a camera at Howard University and they were at Howard they were watching the verdict on a big screen TV in I think an auditorium and they erupted into applause and it just showed the dark racial divide being exposed at a very sort of interesting raw point in the country so the mainstream media blind spot as to what impact race actually was having on the verdict was really really profound while the viewership of the freeway chase was estimated at 95 million Simpson's acquittal was seen by even more an estimated 100 million viewers. But despite the verdict, for many, the image of O.J. Simpson, football hero, will be forever shadowed by that of a man fleeing the law before an audience of millions. I'm Brian Williams. For more information on this episode, visit our website at weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now, please, this special message from Bill Curtis about the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air. It's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years... The Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net, providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident or severe damage from a hurricane, to the home of a broadcaster in need. The Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters, in all areas of our industry, we thank you.